You are listening to the Power of Why podcast. The effect that work has on your life is so much greater than it was 20, 30 years ago because of technology. We carry our work around with us in our pockets. And that's amazing, right? You know, you're in Ottawa, I'm in London, we're on a Zoom call, recording a podcast. Technology is incredible, it's great. But it also, it removes those barriers that that once were there. And I think those barriers in many ways were good. They were good for our heads and our minds. And so if we remove those barriers, we need to just be conscious about what is the effect that work is having on us. And for most people, that's a negative one. For most people, the experience that they have with work is one of frustration and annoyance and stress, and they aren't made to feel like they are worthy and worth something. And really what that experience of work is, is culture. How you feel about the place that you are in and you are working in, that's culture. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Power of Why. My name is Naomi Haile, and today I am here with Ben Branson-Gately. Ben, how are you doing today? So good. Yeah, it's recording this on a Friday. Like, my Fridays are quite busy normally. I'm just trying to get stuff done. I'm like one of those people that, like, powers up towards the end of the week. Just want to, like, yeah. take stuff off my, uh, off my schedule. And I'm on holiday next week. So, yeah, looking that forward is- to that. Nice. Well, I I know we're going to have a lot of fun today. I have so many questions for you with regards to culture, the work that you're doing with Charlie uh, HR. And so for the audience, Ben is the founder and CEO of Charlie HR. Charlie HR is a market-leading human resources information system platform for small businesses, small and medium-sized businesses in the UK. Julian Cook, who is the co-founder of How Am I Going, actually introduced us as he, you know, really admires Ben, the work that he's doing, and how in tune, and this is the important part, like how in tune you are with your why. You've built three companies over your working years, and then you started Charlie alongside your two co-founders in 2015. Um, And so your company focuses, and you'll talk about this later, on the entire employee life cycle, which is really interesting. And right now you have a team of nearly 40 people, which is huge. Congrats. And you also have the Culture Ops podcast um, where you speak to founders, operators, heads um, heads of people and HR about their work experiences. So thanks for being here. I'd really love if you could share a little bit about your origin story and sort of how you grew up. Yeah, and and I guess like also kudos to you for um you know typically when people ask like what's your origin story what they're asking about is like how did you find found your company which is it's just crap actually and and when we think about why we do what we do why anyone does what they do where they've come from is kind of it's kind of everything and that completely defines us and so um yeah, yeah when I read your notes and you were like. Uh, where did you grow up? Where did you come from? That really resonated with me. And, and I guess my answer is, is not an exciting one. It's a pretty boring one. I come from an incredibly privileged upbringing, lived in, in South London, two parents, uh, all who in the medical profession or my grandpa- grandparents in the medical profession grew up in like quite a fast paced school like a london school which is trying to get kids into like you know great schools and universities very sort of um outcomes focused very exam focused and didn't love that really struggled to kind of find my find my niche and struggle with exams and struggle with um all of that kind of stuff um, i'm quite dyslexic and so i think exams are a pretty were a pretty bad way to measure measure my abilities as a kid yeah um but i sort of 
realized at some point, I think in my teenage years, that the way I was going to win or the way that I was going to be successful and, and sort of rise up against the system was just to be the person that put the most amount of effort in. And that doesn't mean that I, you know, I pull all nighters. When I say most amount of effort, for me, it's about the most amount of effort of over a consistent amount of time. So I think if you speak to people today about me, people that I work with, I think they would tell you that I'm pretty consistent. Yeah, you know, for me, that is it's kind of the way I try and go about doing things, like show up consistently in the things that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, for most of my life, I thought I was going to be a doctor, having grown up in a family of, of medics. And so like people and caring for people have always been a big part of my life. And I've always, always had a lot of context in my life. When I, when I speak to other founders, often they're like, well, why are you so chilled and calm? Mm. It's not that I'm super chilled and calm. It's just I know that there are much worse things happening in the world. You know, my dad would come back on an evening and show me a photo of someone that's had their face burned off. Or, you know, we lived in the States for a number of years in a little town. Well, it's not a little town, big town called Louisville, Kentucky, where there's lots of farmers. And lots of those farmers get their arms cut off in heavy uh, machinery. And dad's job basically was to like go and sew them back on. Like that's bad. And I think um, I try and apply that context to, to the work that we do and to what it means to build a company because, you know, I think a lot of founders become very self-obsessed with what they're doing, very self-absorbed with what they're doing. And it feels like life or death and it isn't life or death. Like we're all going to be fine. Like it's, we're not curing cancer we're not trying to eradicate AIDS from the world. We're not coming up with a vaccine for COVID. There are many businesses out there that are trying to do these things and I applaud them and, and the sort of the pressures that they're taking on. But what we're doing is not that. And what most founders are doing is not that. And so trying to apply some context <clears throat> to the work that we do, I think is important. And so I guess that's how maybe my upbringing and the context of my upbringing affects the way I show up to work today. Hmm. Thank you for that context. I think in one of your episodes, you refer back to, um, you know, growing up with parents who were in the in the healthcare industry. And for you to root yourself in that reality or awareness of, of what's really at stake is really important. And I just want to read something from your site, uh, which I thought like ties in really nicely. You said, uh, we believe it's the small companies of today that will solve the important problems of tomorrow. Charlie HR itself might not change the world, but we're building tools to empower the people that will. And I appreciate that your company is very mission driven. And so I'm wondering before we um, talk a little bit more about kind of performance management and all of those things, I'd love for you to explain what your software actually does for organizations when you talk about the employee life cycle and how you support small businesses what does that actually mean there's a difference between what it used to mean and what it's going to mean and i think you kind of catch us in the middle of a, a sort of shifting our why and i look back on the the first sort of three four years of the business and i realized that our why really maybe wasn't as clear or as inspiring for the group of people that we had in the room that it needed to be where we're going is about helping companies craft culture. I, I know as I think about the types of businesses that exist today and, the, and the, the people coming out of university, people coming out of schools, the effect that work has on your life is so much greater than it was 20, 30 years ago because of technology. We carry our work around with us in our pockets. And that's amazing, right? You know, you're in Ottawa, I'm in London, we're on a Zoom call, recording a podcast, 
I'm sitting in my bedroom and I'm able to do all these things. I have to move. Technology is incredible. It's great. But it also, it removes those barriers that weren't, that once were there. And I think those barriers in many ways were good. They were good for our heads and our minds. Work is a part of life. Life is not work. And so if we remove those barriers, we need to just be conscious about what is the effect that work is having on us. And for most people, that's a negative one. For most people, the experience that they have with work is one of frustration and annoyance and stress, and they aren't made to feel like they are worthy and worth something. Mm. And really what that experience of work is, is culture. How you feel about the place that you are in and you are working in, that's culture. Just gone through a period of 10 years where culture was this kind of fluffy thing and we, we got lost for a moment during that sort of we work phase where we were like, oh, culture is like free beer and it's ping pong tables and it's yeah. neon signs on the wall that say hustle. Well, it isn't any of those things. Culture is the people you hire. It's the policies, the do's and don'ts you have of an organization. And it's the processes you have. It's the way you operate. All of that drives, creates, builds this feeling, this culture of what it means to, 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 to work within that organization. And so what we're really passionate about is helping companies think about how they can pull those levers, how they can craft that culture, that experience for their team. Because if work is having a greater impact on our lives, we want to make sure it's a positive one. And so that's what we're trying to do. And initially, when I was going through some of the blog pieces, the written pieces of content on your website, uh, there was one called How Do You Build Culture When You Don't Have Office, like the office space, the workplace as a crutch. And initially, when I was reading the word culture, I think I imagine kind of the typical tech office space and what they mean when they say culture as really superficial, if I'm going to use that word perks, right? Like food, free food, lunches, all of these things. And in not just that piece, but also like another report that you did, where that was actually one of the most common, you know, benefits, perks or benefits that uh, small businesses had when you did a survey of 200 businesses. And I'm wondering, I know there was a nuance there around like once companies hit the 40 person mark, things changed dramatically in terms of benefits and it was more focused on like childcare um, subsidies and gym memberships and that sort of thing and so do we have a by we maybe specifically the tech space have a flawed understanding of what culture means and is part of the way that you know charlie and your leadership going is there like an education piece when it comes to this like how do you think you're going to be the most effective when it comes to helping organizations with this. Yeah. And I think, you know, I have absolutely no idea if what we want to do is possible. I have absolutely no idea if we're going to be successful at it, but I absolutely do know that it's important and that, that I believe it in it and the team believe it. There's a huge education piece and that's, and that's part of the problem. But COVID has been a bit of a, a bit of a spark for us. It's given us a bit of an edge because suddenly all of those crutches we were using, all of those benefits, all of those policies that felt like they were quite flashy. Yeah. They weren't there. You didn't have your office. There were no ping pong tables. Like you couldn't use a bloody gym membership. So the baseline, the underlying foundational culture was exposed. Can't have parties on a Friday or cool get togethers or dinners. Yeah. You couldn't do any of that. And I think a lot of people around the world sat up and went, Oh, I now realize the reality of the organization I'm working for. 
and some of this some of these distractions these plasters that they were using to sort of create the illusion of culture faded away and they realized the reality of the business they were working they were working with for and i think and i think that's really sad but i think it's really good because i think a lot of people are now starting to say actually i want to work somewhere where they really value their people where the culture is really effective and where i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna feel like i've got a home i think while there's a huge education piece while i think it's gonna be very difficult for us to do what we want to do and i'm very honest about that i do think that covid has been a bit of a bit of a juncture for us that we can sort of we can use and uh we can we can we can create momentum off the back of mm-hmm. that's really interesting and in one of these pieces too, like I keep referencing these pieces because they're so um, interesting. And I like how much detail you also embed in these articles. There aren't just, you know, high level and things that you can't necessarily apply. But you talked about the importance of codification and really having all of these policies and procedures documented. Otherwise, they, they don't exist, right? And so what do you think for companies, for most companies who were transitioning into remote, how do you think people were or organizations were able to get away with this for so long? And I'm wondering how and what your transition was like from physical office space to remote. What did you learn about, you know, the very structures of your own company, Charlie? So I think the biggest difference between operating primarily office based versus primarily remote or hybrid based is the deliberateness of your of how you need to think about crafting your culture. When we're face to face in a, in an office every day, it's much easier for me to use those distractions. Free drinks on a Friday. Oh, let's all go to the pub, or look at this not this nice new furniture we brought, or you know we're going to go and do a team social together and go and do loads of stuff. When people are re- working remotely in high and in a hybrid way, you don't have that. So you have to be incredibly deliberate about how you show up as a leader. It's way harder, I think, to be a leader in a remote organization than it is to be in an office-based organization. You have to try much harder. You have to be a lot more deliberate in terms of the way that you work. And the same applies for culture. You have to really think about, okay, what's the culture trying to create? How do we make sure that everyone experiences it in the same way? We don't get different, different experiences for different people. And you have to really have codified it. You have to have sat down and gone, What's the culture we want to create? What are our values? What are our behaviors? And if you speak to a lot of founders and say, what is the type of culture you're trying to build? I'm not actually sure they'd be able to answer that question because they've never done that thinking. Can't get away, you can't, can't get away from that when you're working in a, in, a, in a remote environment. So I think that's the biggest shift that we've seen from companies is suddenly it's like, oh, wow. You know, we didn't have to document this stuff before because people could just turn around and say, hey, Ben, what do I do about this? Yeah. But now they can't do that. So... We need to make sure we're, we're documenting stuff. We're creating process for these things. We're like writing out what our policies actually are. And I think it's a really good thing. I think it's going to be really hard for a bunch of the next couple of years. I think people are going to go from, through massive learning curves. I think leaders are going to have real crisis of confidence. But I think the outcome for the employee is going to be great in the long run. Yeah. And, and the one thing that I really liked that came out of this circumstance was around how important accessibility is right like at the end of the day when you talk about the experiences of one individual and another they're so wildly different right if this person has visible disabilities if this person has invisible disabilities understanding 
how your employees actually interact with the day-to-day -day is going to be varied. And I think this piece around codification, just making sure that every team member has access in the way that is aligned with you know who they are is is a challenge and i think it's it's forcing leaders organizations to step up right because the bare minimum is not enough anymore i'm wondering you know um in one of the podcast episodes you actually had two of your employees on on the show and i thought that was really interesting to hear from like folks who operationalize folks who are like decision makers like yourself and one person mentioned that charlie is not necessarily a, an organization where the exact same people or the same personalities are like found on your team and i and i thought that was really interesting and i'm wondering if that was intentional because I in at the hiring and in the recruiting phase and the nuance here is that often I hear organizations wanting to hire for culture fit and that gets really messy when you're just hiring like the same people <laughs> people who look the same people who think the same that sort of thing so I'm wondering if there were like intentional things that you and your leadership leadership team did where you were able to attract you know people from different backgrounds, people who don't fit that quote-unquote mold? Mm. I mean, the, the truth is, is that we got this wrong for um, for a long time. And we didn't, you know, you mentioned up at the, the front of the show, you know, Ben founded Charlie with two other co-founders. Yeah, I, I did, but they're two other white men. If you want to put yourself in a situation where you're going to struggle to build a diverse organisation, start a company with a bunch of white guys. So from day one, we're working with diversity debt and we didn't really realize that we weren't as attuned to it as we should have been. And definitely in those early years, thinking about hiring, you know, I would, I would say things and think about things that I cringe when I look back on now in terms of hiring for culture fit, hiring with someone you want to go for a coffee with. It's like, well, actually, yeah. no, I, that's not going to help us build the type of organization we're after. So I guess over those early years, we made a lot of mistakes and put ourselves in a real hole when it came to the diversity of our organization. So we've had to really change that. And Amy, our chief of staff has been, she's really spearheaded a lot of that and, and owned a lot of it and pushed it. It's not a project. It's not something you turn on and turn off. It's something that you, it's how you approach your organization. You do it every day. And yeah, when I look at where we are now today in terms of our in terms of the makeup of our team, where our team are from, race, ethnicity, gender. I'm really proud of how it splits down. But that doesn't mean that we're done. It doesn't mean that we've you know, got to the finish line. It has to be something that you're constantly thinking about. The key thing that founders get wrong, and I talk to people a lot about this, is how much more effort is required to hire and build a diverse organization. Hey there. Thanks for tuning into this episode. If you are enjoying the conversation, make sure to share it with a friend. Take a screenshot, spread the word. It really allows me to bring on more incredible guests as we continue to level up in the podcasting space. If you aren't going to put much effort into your hiring process, I guarantee you're going to hire a lot of people that look like you and think like you. Why? Because you're going to go to the candidates that are most easily accessible. Your network or recommendation or the jobs boards that you used guess what like it's gonna be a whole bunch of people that look like you think like you we yeah. know the best organizations are full of diverse ideas diverse thinking because we're building products and businesses that are serving a diverse population 
So we know that that's clear. Most founders just aren't committed enough to put the time in to, to run those hiring processes properly to a point where they can put themselves in a situation where they can actually build and hire a diverse team. You have to reach outside your network. You have to use hunt for different jobs boards and different places to advertise. You have to go out and source yourself and spend time trawling LinkedIn yourself. If you do that, I promise you, you can build a diverse team that feels inclusive that people want to be part of. But it might mean that you have to delay a project. It might mean that you don't hit a growth goal. And so I think this is where all these things come back to the same point, which is like, what I think I care most about is genuine leadership, not being disingenuous. I think the most dangerous type of leadership is the disingenuous kind, where we say one thing is important and then we do another. Yeah. We say diversity is important, but we're not prepared to put the time in. We say that looking after our team's mental health is important, but we're not prepared to sacrifice the amount of time that people can spend looking after themselves. We're not, we're not prepared to invest in therapy. Yeah. We say holiday is important, but we don't take any ourselves, or we don't remind people to take it. I don't actually have a view on what people should do and how they should run their businesses. I think the thing I care about most is like, if you're going to say something is a value or something is something you believe in, you have to back it up. Otherwise the head's saying one thing and the feet are doing another. And I think that's just a really dangerous place to be in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's the alignment piece, right? Like, are you matching up with, with all of these things? Yeah. And you, you mentioned a little bit about the, um, I think when people think diversity and inclusion, they often go to first, at least the sourcing and the recruitment piece. Like we just need to, our company just needs to look diverse. Um, I'm wondering, cause you have talked about this online. I'm wondering what that looks like, you know, when you, if you are bringing different people into the organization, do they actually have an environment where they can thrive? Are the policies and procedures set out where they would actually be able to, you know, develop here and move up here in advance. So I'm wondering what the, some of those practices look like, whether it's, you know, the parental leave policy that you folks put in place, what that looks like more tangibly after they've entered. Well, you know, after someone has, has gotten a job with us, mm-hmm. what are the things that, what are the things that we do to keep them in the room and to make sure they, 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 they feel included in the type of business that we're building? So I think the term that maybe clarifies a lot of our approach to policy is what we call structured flexibility. I'm definitely not in the school and we're not as a business and Amy, our chief of staff, really bangs the drum for this of complete freedom and flexibility. As humans, I think we need, we need parameters to work with it. We work best when um, ambiguity is taken away. So let me give you a good example of that. You know, for many years, we had an unlimited holiday policy. Yeah. But actually that caused way more anxiety than, than, it, than, than it led to people being really happy. Because they were like, the first thing is obviously it's not unlimited. So like, you've got to pick a number. Is 25 okay? Is 35 okay? Is 45 okay? Right. So actually it made people anxious. They weren't sure kind of exactly where to go, how many, how many days to book. Another example is our hybrid working policy what we haven't said is like you can work wherever in the world for as many days as you want because a business is teams. We're talking about um, teams, not individuals here. We have to think about the effect of someone's behavior on somebody else. And so when we think about policy, be that parental leave, be that 
personal days, be that our hybrid work policy, be that our holiday policy, we're thinking about it through the lens of structured flexibility, which is giving our teams the choice to do what they want to do within a framework to limit anxiety, mm. to limit the negative effect their choices could have on other people. Yeah. It was uh, interesting, actually, that you brought up the paid time off piece, because I think a lot of, I, I don't remember when this was, what year, but a lot of companies moved to this whole unlimited paid time off or unlimited vacation model. And one of our current clients has that in place as well. And the research actually, like, it sounds great, but the research shows that in environments that are actually very busy and have insane work hours, like pay time off in this model is actually underused, right? And leads to more burnout. And so I, I know that you had an unlimited pay time off policy before, and then you transitioned out of it to fit this principle that you're talking about. I'm wondering what you noticed happened after the fact, like how, what did that decision mean for your employees, for your teams, for the way that you work? Yeah, it was, it was hugely positive. And people have ended up taking more holiday by putting a cap on it rather than saying it could be unlimited because if you if I say you've got 25 days a year you're much more likely to go okay cool I'm going to go and make sure I take those and like we really encourage our team leads and our managers to go mm. out and say look you've not taken enough Naomi like you should you should probably book some more in to make sure that people feel like holiday is something that should be booked and should be used we want to get to the end, end of the year and people have taken their, their full allotment so yeah we have a, a team that take a lot more holiday than they did when it was unlimited. And so to me, that's a really successful thing because I, I want people to take the holiday. That's why it's there. Again, it comes back to this idea that like, you know, the typical diagram of work and life is like a scale work life. And it like balances back and forth. That is such an unhealthy diagram for us to put out there. Yeah. Really? like life is this big circle and we have all these little mini circles inside of it some of them crossing over some of them bigger than others and the size of those things is constantly changing you start a family your family bubble grows um you know maybe your friend bubble shrinks a little bit maybe your work bubble shrinks a little bit but they're constantly in an, an ebb and a flow and they should be they should be component parts work should be a component part of your life it should not be the be all and end all we only get one opportunity to do this. Like, yes. it's literally it. We're never getting that. We're never getting the last 39 minutes back. I've chosen to spend those 39 minutes with you. Mm. And I think, I know that sounds profound and like annoying and like, I don't know, a, a bit macro, but it's true. Yeah. These, these things, these things are important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think just, it's that context piece again, right? Like it, when you know that these, and you've actualized that these things are static, then your, your whole perspective changes, right? I'm actually interested in your perspective around why, if we know that it doesn't work, unlimited paid time off policies, why do companies do it? Like, is it a financial thing knowing that, okay, this is actually how I get folks to work more I know I could get more out of them in the short term. Like, why, why do this if we know it doesn't work? Why? Why institute policies that look great on paper when you're speaking about them, but actually have a detrimental effect on, on people, like the people that you employ? 
It's a tough question. I mean, look, I think the most valuable yet the most dangerous thing about human psychology is the ego. By, ne- by definition, the ego is, is us, is who we are. It is our sense of self. But I think you have to create, I think it's important to, to put some limits on the ego. And if we go back hundreds of years, religion was a far greater thing than it is today. The idea of there being something bigger and greater and more important than you kind of puts a little dampener on the ego, right? It's like, hey, Naomi, you're not that great because there's like some all-powerful being deciding what's going on. Now, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I think that having some concept of there being things that are more important and yeah, more important, more powerful than you, I think is is important because it helps just keep your ego under wraps. So that could be the world, it could be the earth, it could be nature. I like to stand on top of hills because it makes you feel small and really insignificant. Yeah. And I think when you feel small and insignificant, you probably think more about the other people around you than you do about yourself. So we're in this world of like the tech founder, the CEO celeb. Yeah. We all want to be like on LinkedIn posting cool things that we've done and stuff that makes us feel good about ourselves. And hey, I do that. But we need to put, we need to, we need to make sure there's a limit on that. And I think your biggest responsibility as someone running an organization is the people under your care. Mm. You have a duty to look after them. And I honestly care more about doing good by those people than I care about making money for the organization. And there will be a ton of people that will disagree with me on that. And that is absolutely fine. But I don't care because all I have is my is my name and how I show up in the world. And like when I'm close to death, that is the stuff that I will think about. I will not be thinking about all this money I made. Yeah. yeah. You're not taking that with you, right? Like yeah. at the end of the day. Thank you for that. One of the last questions I had was around like the best investment that you've made in yourself. But before we get there, I was wondering your thoughts on Uh, performance management specifically. And I think a lot of organizations struggle with this in terms, whether, whether it's about cadence, like how often do we do these? Like, how do we do it in a way that isn't frustrating for the, for the employee? Right. And so I'm wondering whether your, whether your software um, deals with this or not, how you've approached performance management and what is, in, in your view, what is actually the, the purpose of having a performance management framework? Good question. So as someone that sells software, this might feel like a silly thing to say, but software can only do so much. You've really got to like approach performance management in the right way as an organization and as people, and then the software is there to help you. So yeah, our software helps you automate the review process, but you need to be the people thinking about what are the right ways to do reviews. Best and most important thing when it comes to people's development is knowing where they want to end up if you don't know where they want to end up, can't help them. Your job as a manager is to line up the trajectory of the person and the company as close as you can. And when those two things come real close, it's a beautiful thing. And the person will succeed, the company will succeed. I'm pretty sure I thought this uh, before I met Kim Scott, but I definitely think it after I met Kim Scott. So if anyone wants to like go and dive into a bunch of content, go read Kim's book. She's got... 
Radical Candor. She's got um, Just Work. That's a great book on um, building diverse, inclusive organizations. But yeah, she tells lots of good stories about asking that question, which is like, what are your dreams? Where do you want to be? And, and you'll find things out and you'll be like, oh, great. Well, actually, there's this opportunity that exists that could help you get there. Mm. So that's the first thing. And the second one is just going to sound super, super simple, but it is that you've got to listen. I've not done a lot of listening on this podcast. I've done a lot of talking and I kind of enjoy it. I don't do it. I don't maybe do it. I don't do it that much. I, I prefer to listen. And I prefer to listen because I think that's where you find the good stuff. You know, the secret is in the silence. Create space for people to talk and you'll get a lot out of them. If you're constantly pushing your own agendas and that's all, they, that's all that you're, they're going to talk about is your agenda, not theirs. So performance management, software is great. It can help, but it should be, it should be there to automate. First question, make sure you know where your team want to go to make sure you listen more than you talk Mm. how often does your team do do you do biannually once a year or is it kind of quarterly reviews and then we do monthly one-on-ones which are progression and development conversations really cool well thanks for sharing all of that uh ben uh for you know i have two more questions for you just around that investment piece like in terms of you know, whether it was time devoted towards a particular hobby, but things that you've done in your life that have really helped you get to where you are today? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So if it was going to be a monetary investment, I would definitely say therapy. I've been having therapy weekly for three years as someone that is speaking to people in the team and trying to be supportive, having a place for myself where I can go and unload and say someone focused on me rather than me having to be focused on them is super important. So I think therapy is definitely up there as an, an investment. I'd recommend everyone everyone do it to some degree. It's just having a, a safe space to talk is great. And then the thing that doesn't cost anything, but has been amazing is just having a, a sort of a daily journal and not the, not really the sort of, you know, those companies that are making lots of money by selling like the 10 minute journal and the five minute journal and the like appreciation journal, right? Like, there's a lot more to my journal that's just nuts and bolts. It's my little template that I built myself. I run it in Evernote. And sure, there's like daily gratitude. The best way to think about it for me is it's like my warm-up routine for the day. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big NFL fan. If you're a quarterback, you're out on the pitch and you are going through your different motions. Like you're warming your body up. Then you're like getting your arm warm. Then you're going to do a couple of small throws. Then you're going to do a couple of like... Um, get some wide receivers to run some routes like you're going to go through your different progressions and you're going to do that in a certain order and the order that you do those things is what gets you to be ready and so my journal is more about the order of things that I do and how I start my day than it is about necessarily the things in it and yeah super simple super easy just do it every day consistency Yeah, uh, I was actually just going to bring it back to the first thing that you talked about, which is consistency. Um, that's really great. And and the last piece was around because you're you're in a really interesting space, and I think where HR tech is going in the future is like I don't know. This is just a really good time. Do you have any not necessarily trends, but things that you have your eye on, things are, that are really interesting in your particular industry that you want to share with us today? Anything that's been that you've been curious by? Great question. Vulnerability. I think to be a great leader in 10, 20, 30 years time, you're going to have to be default vulnerable, default open. And we're starting to see a lot more of that, which is great. 
And if I was going to actually characterize it in a different way, I would characterize it as a shift away from traditionally seen as masculine leadership characteristics towards traditionally seen as feminine leadership characteristics. I don't think they have to be labeled like that, but I think that's how they, that's how we know them. That's how we think about them. And we're seeing that pendulum swing. And we saw that trend really, really come to the fore in COVID because you couldn't stand up and be like, everything's great. Because if you did do that, your team was like, you're bullshitting. Stop lying to me. You're also really struggling. And so I hope that that continues. You know, I hope that leaders continue to be vulnerable, to be open, to talk about the stuff that's good, the stuff that's bad. And that all kind of comes together nicely. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for um, coming on here and sharing your story a little bit with us all the way from London. Uh, what's the best place for people to connect with you online? Yeah, no worries. Um, if you want to connect with me, they can find me on Twitter. I'm at Gately, G-A-T-E-L-E-Y. Or they can head to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever they get their podcasts and look for the culture ops or one word podcast and uh, give us a listen and let us know what you think amazing thanks ben thank you to everyone who has taken the time to listen to this episode we will catch you in the next one all right thank you for listening to the power of why drop us a review on apple Podcasts with the one reason that you really love the show or this particular episode and we will see you next week